Hey, does that work? Thank you. Very good. All right, so we are reading from Joel chapter 2, verse 18 uh, to the end. So, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no, uh, I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green, the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down from you abundant rain and early the early and the later rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain, and the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. You will restore uh, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and then praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is no none else." And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Chapter 3. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you're paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head, swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. 
Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men who of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earthquake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with milk and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. And a fountain shall, uh, fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and, the water, uh, and water the valley of Shittim. Uh, Egypt shall become a desolation and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood. Blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. All right, good morning. Let's, uh, let's pray together as we get into this passage. Father, we thank you for your word. And thank you for the minor prophets that um, that the Bible isn't isn't all the same, but that it was written over a period of of many years by a lot of different authors, telling lots of different stories um, that yet all tell your story of of who you are and what you've done for your people. Father, I thank you that, that in the Minor Prophets we see just the reality that you are a gracious and merciful God, even though your people continually and consistently rebel against you. Father, I thank you for today's passage, which shows us that you graciously restore your people and, and make a way uh, for your spirit to be put in them. And that yet you also show us that you're, you're holy and just and that you'll, you'll punish the nations for, for how they've treated your people, for the ways in which they, too, have rebelled against you. Father, I pray today that you would help us, um, that you would, you would send your spirit um, that you've promised to put in your people to, to help us to understand your word this morning, that, that we, would, we would benefit from it, that we would be encouraged, that we would be uh, drawn closer to you uh, and, and deeper into relationship with you and, and with one another. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf. We thank you for the love that you have for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So last week, we looked at the, the first half of the book of Joel, and we saw this, this locust plague that had happened, these these 
bugs, these locusts had kind of invaded the land, and they essentially just laid, laid waste to everything. They, they'd eaten everything so that like grain and wine and oil uh, were, were gone. The, the people were starving, there was a famine, um, and then there was even more looming judgment on the horizon. There was an army that was going to come uh, to pour out more judgment on the people of God. And so uh, God called them to repent. He, he even through uh, Joel, gave them like, this is what you do, this is what you say, this is how you need to respond in repentance to the Lord. Um, and so the, the second half of the book, which, which Josh just read for us, um, really it's, it's, it's two things. Uh, first, it's the first two verses, which kind of served a transition from judgment to restoration of God's people and then judgment that follows for the nation. And then the rest of the passage outside of those first two verses is God speaking to his people, telling them what's going to take place. And so those first two verses, they, they move us from, from judgment to restoration. Joel says, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. So he has a, an, an intense devotion to them. We normally just think of jealousy as, as a bad thing, but for the Lord, it's, it's like passionate devotion to his people and to his land. So he, he feels that, and Joel says that he, he pities them. He pities the state that they're in. And I think that when we hear the word pity, we often think of it as, as a bad thing, right? Like Mr. T, he, he pities the fool. Like that's, a, that's kind of a, an insult, kind of a, a taunt from him. Somebody saying like, hey, I pity you, right? That doesn't make us feel loved, right? That doesn't make us feel encouraged and lifted up. Um, but the reality is, is that that true pity isn't, it's not a bad thing. Pity is, is compassionate. It's, it's feeling love and, and sadness brought on by someone else's suffering and, and pain. And, and really, when you think about it, pity is a way of, of showing honor to other people when we do it right. Because what we're doing is we're, we're saying to someone else that, that they, as a person created in God's image, as a human being that was made by him, that they weren't designed for this situation that they're in, right? As human beings, we were created to flourish because of who our God is and how he loves us. And so when we see someone who's not flourishing, like there, there should be some pity, not some like, oh, you're this horrible person, let me come along and fix you, but genuine compassion for them because we know that God has something better for them in store. Pity lifts other people up through acts of compassion. That's what God is doing for his people. He, he pities them in their suffering and pain because he knows way more than we know that he created them for so much more than what it is that they're currently experiencing. And so he, as their God, who loves them, who's, who's in a covenantal relationship with his people, he is going to take action on their behalf to bring them out of the circumstances that they're in. That's what's going to happen in the second half of the book of Joel. So look at what he says in verse 19. He says, Behold, I am sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. So what God is doing here, and what we're going to see throughout as we, as we move through this section, is that God is completely reversing the situation that they're in, right? In the, the first half of Joel last week, we saw specifically that they didn't have grain, they didn't have wine, they didn't have oil, they didn't have anything to offer in the temple. Like their, their land had been laid waste by these locusts, and now God is saying like he's going to undo that instead they're going to have all of these things they're going to be satisfied he's going to take away their reproach among the nations 
He's restoring their name and through them, his own name among the nations. Next, he says that he's going he's to drive out the invaders. Those that have come in to, to kind of pour out this judgment, he's going he's to push them out of the land. Verse 21, he tells the land to rejoice because he's, he's done great things for it. He's, he's doing away with what he has done. He says the fields and pastures are green again so that the animals can graze. The fruit trees and vines, they give their full yield. He tells the people to be glad because he's given them abundant early and late rains. He's, he's causing the land and the people to, to flourish, to prosper. And the result of this is that the threshing floors are full of grains. The, the vats overflow with wine and oil. So everything that had been taken away is given back in abundance. And look at verse 25. This is what he's doing for his people. He says, I will restore to you the years, years that the swarming locust has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sit among you, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. So the first thing we should see here is that he's, he's restoring the years that these bugs took from them. I think that's significant. Sometimes I think what happens is we think that God like pours out judgment on his people and it's this like really short period of time and then they repent and he gives them grace. They endured a lot of suffering because of their sin, because of their rejection against God. And when they finally repented, then he uh, restores things for them. So there was, there was true suffering and pain. It wasn't, it wasn't momentary. It was lasting and they repented and God comes along and he restores them. The second thing is that he's, he's completely restoring the things that he, he caused among his people. He poured out this judgment. Uh, now he is restoring what was caused by them. He's, he's reversing the judgment. It says that people will know that he's the Lord their God. There is none else. And that this statement that he throws out, that they're going to they're know him, that people will, will know, it's, it's bookended. On both sides of it is a statement that they're not ever going to be put to shame again. He gives them a promise. They're going to they're know him, and through their knowledge of God, they're going to know that he is faithful, that he keeps his promises, that they're never again going to be put to shame. They're not going to experience this same kind of thing again. And the reason why is what follows. Look at what he says he's going to do in the future. He says, And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. Right? As we've gone through the Old Testament, we've talked about this, this cycle, the cycle of, of sin and uh, rebellion and then judgment and then repentance and then sin and rebellion and judgment and repentance. And it just repeats over and over and over again. That it just keeps happening. They're in this situation. They, they, they come back from exile. Uh, God has poured out this massive judgment on his people. And yet they, they continue to rebel against him. So that he pours out more judgment so that they repent. And they're likely to end up there again. But now God is going to do do something different. He's going to pour out his spirit on his people. He's going to put his spirit in them. He's going to inaugurate, we know from other prophets, a new covenant where, where his law is written on their hearts, where he causes his people to walk in his statutes. He's going to change them from the inside out so that they can actually obey and walk and do what he calls them to do. So he promises that one day he's going to pour out his spirit. And you might recognize this, this promise from when we went through the book of Acts. 
Because Peter quotes this at Pentecost. So at Pentecost, you might remember all the believers, Jesus has left. He's ascended into heaven. They're, they're, they're sad because he's gone. They're, they're scared because he's gone. They don't know what's going to happen. So he tells them to stay in Jerusalem. So they're all in this room together. They're, they're praying. And then uh, Luke tells us that the spirit falls. And when the spirit falls, something happens to the disciples. And they begin to speak in, in, in tongues and in, in, in different languages so that people uh, around them, the, the crowds, hear this happening. And the crowds respond by thinking that they're all drunk. Because it's, it's chaotic, it doesn't make sense. And so Peter begins to respond to them. And he says they're not drunk because it's, it's only nine in the morning. Instead, he says that what's happening is, is, is this. And then he quotes from the prophet Joel. And he quotes this passage that we just read. He's saying what's happening, what they're seeing, this, this, this phenomenon that they're experiencing is that God has kept his promise to his people that he made through Joel that one day afterward he's going to pour out his spirit on his people and they're going to be full of the spirit. They're going to prophesy. They're going to dream dreams. They're going to see visions. So God's promise to pour out his spirit on, on young, old, male, female, it's fulfilled in the New Testament because of Jesus. Listen to this quote from, from Dwayne Garrett who explains what's significant about this promise in the Old Testament. He says, The major characteristic of the outpouring of the spirit is its universality. All the people of God receive the Spirit. The text specifically erases the major social distinctions of the ancient world, gender, age, and economic status. In an era in which men, not women, the old, not the young, and the landowners, not slaves, ruled society, Joel explicitly rejected all such distinctions as criteria for receiving the Holy Spirit. He's saying everyone is going to receive the Spirit. But the passage keeps going. There's more promise, and Peter quotes more of it in the New Testament too. Verse 30. It says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. So you probably all also remember from Acts all of those things happening, right? Those things, those things didn't take place on Pentecost. Peter, Peter quotes them, but uh, they don't immediately follow the events of Pentecost. And so that should cause us to wonder, like, what, what, what happened there? Did, did God not keep his promise? Is, is Joel's prophecy incorrect? Because he, he, he didn't get it right. Um, and so there's this picture. I think we have a picture here. Maybe. There we go. First of all, you should all be impressed by my graphic design skills. <laughs> so when we think about prophecy, sometimes this image is helpful for us to understand. And so there are these, these two mountains, and there's this, this stick guy over here who's, who's looking at the mountains. And us, from our perspective, we can see there's two mountains. But, but stick guy over here, from the angle he's looking, he can only see one mountain. 
And so sometimes the way prophecy works in Scripture is that the prophets are are looking into the future, and God is giving them a vision of the future. And what they see is they see one mountain. They see this event is going to take place in the future. Afterwards, God is going to do this. He's going to pour out his spirit. People are going to prophesy. Prophesy. People are going to see visions. The, the, the moon is going to be turned into blood. All of these things are going to happen. And he's, he's looking at it as if it's one event that's going to take place in the future. But then as, as time goes on and God begins to fulfill those promises, we can see that what's actually happening is there's two different points in time that the prophet was looking at. And so God did pour out his spirit on Pentecost. That's the, the first mountain. That has happened. And now we're, we're waiting for that second mountain to come along. We can see it because of the perspective we have looking backwards. And so the, the, those promises are going to be fulfilled at some point in the future. Right? There's an outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost, but, but we're still waiting for the final day of the Lord that Joel was looking towards, when, when Jesus is going to return and, and all of those kind of end-time events are going to happen. Now, I don't think we should like press this and like build it into a whole system and think that like every time prophecy always works this way, and it, it, it has to, because I think that would just, just make things a little crazy for us. Instead, we should recognize that sometimes this is the way it works, and in, and in this case, that seems like what's happening. But the real highlight of the passage of that promise we read is what he says in verse 32. He says, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone isn't just Israel. Right? Everybody is, is, is more people than Israel. And that's good news because in the Old Testament, the people who experienced salvation, the people who were the people of God, the people who got promises like the Spirit poured out on them were the people of God, Israel. But he's saying through Joel that something different is going to happen in the future. Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't mean that everyone will be saved. It means that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The promise is is universal, but there's still a requirement. We must call on the name of the Lord. And that's good news for the Gentiles because the Gentiles are about to get some bad news in this passage. In chapter 3, the Lord explains that in that day, when when this judgment falls, uh, he's going to bring all the nations down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. The word Jehoshaphat means Yahweh judges. So it's this kind of valley where he's going to pour out judgment on his people. And and this valley is typically understood. It's typically identified with with the valley of Jezreel, which moves from, from Mount Carmel down to the Jordan River. And so there he says that he's going to gather all these nations together. He's going to enter into judgment with them on behalf of his people because of what the nations have done to his people. And then he proceeds to indict these different nations for their crimes against his people. And he he tells them repeatedly that he's going to bring their their payments on their own heads. So he's going to treat them like they treated his people. He tells them to prepare for war. All all the inhabitants, if they don't have weapons, they should make some. They take their their plowshares and beat them into swords. This is the opposite of what we saw in Isaiah. Uh, He's telling them to prepare for war. Even even the weak among them are going to be warriors. They should get ready because this day is coming. He says, the harvest is ripe, the winepress is full, the vats overflow with judgment because of the evil of the nations. 
And listen to verse 16 that closes out this section. It says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and earth quake. So the Lord is, is ferocious in judgment against the nations. But, it, but it, this verse keeps going. But, that's who he is to the nations, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. And then the book ends with, with five verses where, where he tells Israel, his, his people, what's in store for them in the future. He says he's going to restore them fully. They'll be his people. He'll be in their midst. Um, and so his res- restoration of them and his judgment of the nations, it's going to demonstrate that, that he is the Lord their God and that he dwells in their midst. He lives with his people. That's what it's going to be like. He says, no longer shall strangers pass through his land. Jerusalem is going to be holy. It's going to be set apart. It's going to be protected from the nations. It says, the mountains will drip with sweet wine. The hills will flow with milk. The stream beds will all flow with water. A fountain shall come forth from the temple. The people are going to flourish in the place that he's set aside for them. Egypt and Edom will be desolate because of what they've done to God's people. They're not going to be able to harm them anymore. But, but Judah and Jerusalem, they'll be inhabited forever because the Lord will avenge their blood and he dwells in their midst. This prophecy through Joel, God's speaking to his people. He's announcing judgment against the nations, and he's announcing restoration for his people, full and lasting redemption. And so this book, the book of Joel, it's, it's a promise that God is going to continue to show mercy to his people. They've come back from exile. They've uh, rebelled again, and yet he's, he's continuing to pour out mercy and grace. And even more than that, it's not just a promise to his people. It's a promise to all people, because through his prophecy to Joel, he opens up the doors of salvation to everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. He gives the gift of his spirit to everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. It looks forward to a time when God is going to restore his people. He's going to pour out his spirit on them, and, and we get to live in the fulfillment of this promise. When we call upon the name of the Lord, when we trust in him, when we put our faith in him, he puts his spirit in us. He gives us the the ability. He empowers us to walk in his commandments, to to live a different kind of life because of what Jesus has done for us. He came to make a way for us to be able to call upon his name. He made a way for us to be able to be given the gift of his spirit. And Jesus left, giving us the promise that he's going to return. He's going to bring that full and final day of the Lord when he's going to set everything right. His his return is going to be a time of restoration, but it's also going to be a time of judgment. For those who've who've trusted in him, he's going to fully and finally restore. But for those who are apart from him, those who reject him, it's going to be a time of punishment. It's going to be a time of judgment. His judgment is going to be severe. But as he says through Joel, he's going to be a refuge for his people. We will be with him and he's going to right all the wrongs. So this passage should should motivate us to to see our God as as holy and just, who, who doesn't let sin go unpunished. 
But our God is also gracious and merciful. He sent Jesus to take our punishment, to stand in our place, so that we could call upon his name for salvation, so that he could give us the gift of his spirit, so that we could could break, because of him, that cycle of sin and rebellion in, in our lives and in his creation. And because of that, for those who trust in Jesus, the day of the Lord is going to be a happy day, even if it means judgment for people who reject him. Let's pray, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Father, we thank you that you made a way for us. That that you didn't leave us as your people in an endless cycle of, of sin and rebellion and judgment. But that you sent your son to, to break it for us, to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, to, to buy us out of our slavery to sin, to transfer us from the domain of darkness and into your kingdom. Father, we thank you that you didn't limit the gift of salvation or or the gift of your spirit to a particular people group or a gender or or a socioeconomic status, but that you flung open the doors of salvation in Jesus and that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved that you will pour out your spirit on young and old, men and women, because of who you are and what you've done for us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.